BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today we're speaking with Dr. Mina Basari, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at NYU School of Medicine, and a psychologist who has a private practice in New York City, who works with children and adults. And today we are going to talk very specifically about anxiety, because we have this incredible clinician who is in the thick of it, because we are in New York City where uh, if national anxiety rates are at about 7% mm-hmm. in children, which is 4.4 million children diagnosed with anxiety, and New York City probably, if I had to guess, the numbers are even higher in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I think we can get so much out of speaking with you, and I'm so happy that you're here to talk with us. So let's jump right into defining anxiety and defining anxiety disorder and the difference between those two things. Absolutely. Well, Aliza, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. This, uh, I'm so happy you're here. I jumped right into a question. I love didn't it. even let you um, no. say hello. No, hello. Um, you know, like I said, I'm very happy to be here. This is a wonderful chance to talk more about, you know, actually working directly with clinical disorders um, and especially anxiety in kids. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of kids who are struggling with this. I mean, we're talking about 4.4 million kids and uh, that's a that's a big number. So you said you wanted to start with defining so, anxiety, right? Yes. Let's define anxiety and anxiety disorder so that we can really understand kind of the difference between anxiety that everyone's going to have. Absolutely. And anxiety disorder. And also, I think, yeah, let's start with that. Right. Okay. So I think it's best to think about anxiety, you know, when we define it as really a physiological and behavioral response to a perceived threat. You know, common words that we use are worry, fear, stress, but really it's that idea that our body has a physical reaction when we perceive threats and we also have a behavioral reaction when there's a threat. And when is the anxiety moving in the direction of a problem, something where you really want, where you'd see a clinical presentation and you'd want a child to seek outside support? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's the question I think we both get a lot, Mm -hmm. right? Is, well, how do we know? Is this in the clinical range? Is it in the typical range? And um, I think the framework that I use is really deciding using three different criteria. I mean, there's obviously the symptoms, right? But that just gives you a sense of, does this child have this behavior or not? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily help parents decide, is it getting to the point where we need treatment, right? You see the behavior, but do you still need treatment? Um, So we look at one is intensity. So does the child's distress level match their developmental stage and the event, right? A good example is kindergarten. I mean, you know, the first day of kindergarten, this is a very difficult separation time, right? Big step. Let's take the child who, you know, is crying uncontrollably, grabbing onto mom's leg, um, complains of stomach aches, says like, I can't do it, is having a tantrum, inconsolable when the parents leave, right? So you have sort of that one example. Then you take the other example, which is a child who says, mom, please don't leave. I don't know if I can do it, Um, you know, for about five or 10 minutes. And then the mom says, I'm going to leave now. And the child gets a little weepy. Mom leaves. The child enters the classroom, engages, is fine. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of those two extremes, right? Um, And when we look at intensity, we think, the child who had that bigger reaction that really doesn't match probably developmentally what we would expect, right? And it's really not a reaction that that level of distress is not easy for parents to see, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we look at intensity. Then the next thing we look at is impairment. Is it getting in the way? Do the symptoms interfere with their daily life? Like, for example, are the kids um, not making friends because of social anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Or are they failing tests because they're having test anxiety, right? And three is inflexibility. What we talk about with that is, does the child recover from their distress, right? Because, you know, what we find is when you're feeling anxiety and that event is right in front of you and you feel that anxiety, it's very different than if you're worried, oh my gosh, what about the next time I'm away from mom? Or what about I, you know, what about the next test I have to take? And you think, and the kids are thinking about it for, you know, a, you know, two, three days mm-hmm. and they just can't get unstuck, right? So they're just inflexible with their ability to kind of recover from that distress. And are there things that you notice in the early years that look like, okay, this kid has some anxiety. It's not necessarily grown into a huge problem. Let's think about how we respond to those moments of perceived threat to see if maybe it doesn't have to grow into a huge problem. Is that a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the big questions, again, (laughs) you and I get, right? Is uh, how do we, if it's not a clinical issue, how do we deal with it? Because it's not either clinical or not clinical, right? right? It's kind of this idea that, you know, there's this arbitrary line that we draw, you know, and, and, but there's things that are still hard for kids, even though they're not maybe a full anxiety issue or disorder. So I think it comes down to sort of one is consistent parenting strategies, right? Is just kind of responding more consistently to the child. Because when they're anxious, they feel 
unsafe, uncomfortable. I mean, it's a very unsettling feeling. I mean, us as adults, we feel <laughs> unsettled. unsettled. Feeling. Yeah. Um, so being a consistent parent, you know, kind of finding that consistent response. And typically what we want to mix in is modeling, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can stay calm, you're modeling for them that you're in the same situation, but you're responding in a way that's like, you're able to self-soothe, right? And two is really trying to validate, right? Like, I get that you're anxious. This is hard. You know, a lot of kids find this difficult. I, I see that you're worried. Um, and just really giving them some words and labels for those moments. And then, you know, moving into problem solving and mm-hmm. what can we do? What what can we do to make this situation better for you without having to the parent jumping in to fix it? Thank you for saying that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because it's about the child moving towards finding a way to fix it. But clearly we know that at that moment, they are not able to have that ability. Um, so we don't want to take away, you know, a little bit of that struggle, but we also want to move them forward and not let them be stuck. So let's take the kindergartner who has intense reaction to the separation such that the parent now is feeling a lot of distress and maybe having a reaction to that that is overreactive. The overreactive parent is the parent whose behaviors are directly driven by the internal distress they feel. Okay, great. Right. I mean, that's not great, but that's a great (laughs) way of putting it. But it's true, right? Because that's the, you know, we, like we're saying, as parents, you feel like you feel that internal distress, like Mm -hmm. what they're feeling, what you're feeling, it's all kind of mixed in there. Um, But can you manage your behaviors in a way that's like sort of overreactive or, you know, even kind of underreactive, I guess, um, and just really... I don't know, what would you call like a third category, sort of empathic or? Um... Maybe you you have an empathic reaction and also. Oh, how about a regulated reaction? Great. A regulated yeah. reaction. Yeah. I like it. And in having a regulated reaction, you can help your child kind of borrow some, co-regulate with you a little bit. I think that's a great way to think about it, right? Because... So if you have the overreactive parent who is just responding to the internal distress they feel, you know, with their behaviors, you could see a parent yelling, you could see a parent like, you know, um, kind of like crying as well, or you could see a parent saying, I can't do this, or, you know, try almost like feeling very, very helpless. Or even Um, maybe not having, not forcing the child to go to school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think then you have sort of the underreactive parent who uh-huh. really freezes up, isn't saying much, is just kind of like trying to move the child along without really providing any comfort or really just, you know, trying to give some strategies, is just sort of trying to push through. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have sort of the well regulated parent, right? Who is saying, like, I feel distressed about it. How do I help my child in this moment? What, you know, what's my goal, right? We combine sort of the emotion and the behavior Mm -hmm. um, and the facts. This isn't about pointing out the flaw in how a parent feels or even behaves. This is just about having an awareness that 
the way you respond to your feelings in front of your kids will have an impact on how they can regulate themselves right a little bit not completely it's not your fault it's more we're looking for ways to promote the skills that will help kids who are presenting with these mm-hmm. kinds of behaviors to regulate a little bit more and so in the case of the kindergartner who's highly who's highly reactive and intense about this pain of separating yeah. there are different ways that parents might respond and this isn't about identifying which category you're in and saying, am I right or wrong? It's about, you know, how do your reactions, what's the interplay with your child's reactions, you know? Let's use a real example of like the kindergartner that you're talking about who's having a really intense reaction. And that kindergartner is going to be going through all sorts of his or her own Let's let's have him be a he today. <laughs> so he's going through this intense reaction. He's yeah. devastated about this separation. And now you have mom there who can do one of a number of things. And it's so hard. So none of this is about, you know, am I the kind of mom who would do the right thing or the wrong thing? What's happening here and what this conversation is about is what are some of the ways that we as adults respond to intense feelings in our children and which one of those ways might be more helpful to help our children regulate? And it's not not a judgment. It's more just so that we can have an awareness like, oh, let me check in. Wait a second. My reaction may not be necessary right now. And I might need to figure out ways to help myself regulate so that I can help my child. And also what you're saying is helpful because I think that's what's getting caught in a lot of these uh, parenting issues is parents aren't really aware of how their reactions affect their kid, right? So I think it's a nice way of helping us to just say, look, let's start to have that dialogue, like how your reactions impact your kid. Little James is a children's clothing company line, and it's founded on the belief that fashion and functionality can perfectly coexist. They are made with eco-friendly fibers, quality fabrics, and hand-drawn patterns. Little James is a brand that offers simple, economical, and versatile options for babies, toddlers, and growing children. The threads are made with the earth in mind pure ingredients, organic fibers, and recyclable materials. And all the styles kind of go together and they're really cool. So you get to enjoy your child having autonomy and dressing themselves and choosing their own clothes while still having them look super cool. It's so important to allow your child to dress themselves and express having a sense of self and choice in areas that just aren't super important to you so that when you do need to make choices for them, they feel like, that's okay, I'm not overly controlled. So when you let your kids dress themselves with fun clothing, it's even easier. And Little James products are easy to mix and match so that they'll pick out an outfit you love. If you go to www.littlejamesclothing.com and use the code RGH20, you can get 20% off your order. That's www.littlejamesclothing.com, 
code RGH20. Hello, I'm Helen Johannesson, the owner of Helen's Wines in Los Angeles. This is Wine Face, my podcast that breaks down the ins and outs of wine to an easy, digestible, and more snackable level. We are dropping new episodes every Thursday. So grab a glass of wine, gather some friends, sink into the bathtub, or listen to me on the go. Every Thursday, Wine Face drops. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Can't wait to hear from you and for you to listen along. So let's give three examples of different kinds of reactions that are perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. If your child is in that kind of extreme distress at separating so that we can imagine ourselves then being able to take a step back and Mm -hmm. have a different reaction. So we'll walk through kind of just so people can imagine themselves, because we all have been in situations where we feel dysregulated. Mm -hmm. What does a dysregulated parent look like when they're in an experience where using this kindergartner now um, to illustrate this example? What does the dysregulated parent look like? Yeah. And I think we like to think about it as the overreactive parent. Overreactive. Right. Thank Um, you. Yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great question. We, all parents feel distressed. It is a natural reaction to feel distressed as a parent when your child is distressed. So it's what you do with that distress, right? So we have the overreactive parent who is responding to that distress through their behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So yelling, screaming, maybe crying themselves, um, maybe, yeah. So mad at the child just because they're snapping, you've just got a deal or crying themselves because they're so distressed at the child's crying. And then we sort of have the underreactive parent. I don't see that as as often, but, you know, you have the parent who just sort of freezes up, doesn't know what to do, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, probably is just kind of, try to drag the kid along while not saying very much. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe asking for intervention from the teacher. Um, and then we have the well-regulated parent, you know, who just really knows that they're internally distressed, but is using a lot of like active thinking, like what's the goal, you know, how do I get my child to feel more comforted? Um, and, and that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Again, you know, you're feeling that internal distress and, um, you know, it's kind of thinking about how do I gradually help my child get to a place where they're more calm mm-hmm. and how do I get them to a place where they're more willing to, to go to school, right? And in the moment when you're already feeling those emotions. So when you can check in with yourself and figure out what's going on with you so that you can make a plan for helping your child, right? that is the kind of response that can help them along if they are having difficult or anxious reactions to things. Yes, that's right. So I, I think it's really touchy and, and hard to talk about because some of what we have to talk about and have to address and face in this conversation is that with no blame whatsoever, there must be an acknowledgement that we as parents have a role in both helping kids regulate and also, unfortunately, there is a little bit of the onus is on us when we are dysregulated. Right. That that will have an impact. And it's a hard conversation to have because at the same time, I think we all want 
parents to not take on the responsibility of everything that's wrong mm-hmm. is your fault. And that is not what this is about. No. But there does need to be that conversation of what are the ways that we can support anxious kids with our own behavior, which is the only thing that we have control over. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to state it, right? Is that we have the ability as parents to give our kids opportunities to better, to learn how to manage anxiety. What are some of the opportunities? And I love thinking about it that way. I love the idea that it's not about fault or you have to do this or you're messing your kid up, but rather what are the opportunities that we have as parents to help build our children's skills that will help them get through those feelings of being threatened, those anxious feelings. Let's start with, you know, the early, like kind of elementary school years. Let's think of some examples. I mean, as far as academics, right? Handwriting. It can be very frustrating for kids. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to help kids by fixing or, you know, kind of doing it for them. Mm -hmm. But it's very important for kids to really struggle in order to get to a point where they're feeling like that their handwriting is, you know, what they would want it to be or close to the standards of what we would want them to be. Um, You know, another, and if we think about social, we think about, you know, playdates at that age, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very normal to want to play different things on a playdate. And letting kids figure out how do I compromise versus play something separate versus, you know, negotiate like what we play. And then, you know, you think about an emotional challenge, which is, you know, managing disappointment, managing frustration, um, you know, losing a game or, you know, some, so just letting kids feel those emotions without having to fix it for them. Mm-hmm. So a game is a great example. Playing a game with your younger child and not always making sure that they win. Correct. Even though that might bring out some strong feelings. Correct. So those are all opportunities to build that skill of sitting with those uncomfortable feelings. Yes. And finding a way to soothe yourself or mm-hmm. being able to tolerate that distress in a very kind of like situational way, right? Like meaning it's tied to the situation. Mm -hmm. This is not distress about some big life change. Right. Right. So if it's tied to the situation, then those those are small and safe opportunities to help your child find ways to, to self soothe. Exactly. So let's say they are very upset that they lost a game. I guess this actually, you could do this with every situation, just like with the the kindergarten, right? It's like, you could tell them, don't worry, we'll play another game. You could say, oh, I made a mistake. I miscounted, you won. You could sit with them and, you know, fixing it. Or you might say, you know, that you really understand how hard it is to lose a game. And sometimes when you're sad, you like to do, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I can't think of anything. (laughs) (laughs) but um, see if your child can come up with a way to self-regulate. 
Absolutely. I think that's where problem solving is a really important role that parents can play, not solving the problem for the kids, but problem solving together so that you can get to a point where they're moving closer and closer to finding a solution on their own without you. And so how can you phrase something to a child to help them begin to problem solve? Well, I think you start with validating, right? Because I think that's really important because kids, you know, when they feel that intense emotion, um, it can be very confusing for them and very, um, very overwhelming. So just validating gives them a context, right? Like I, I see that you're feeling really worried about this or, um, I get it. This is hard. And, you know, you feel angry, um, and just being able to give them some of those labels Mm -hmm. and then starting to move into problem solving, you know, after you do the validation, which one of the things you want to ask the child is how do we make this better for you? You know, um, and if they can't engage in that, or that feels too abstract, I think you even step back and say, what's our goal here? You know, that you could feel better and be able to, you know, finish off the play date or, you know, that we can start to help you feel more calm so that we can go to the, to, you know, do a family activity. Mm -hmm. Um, and then start to give them some ideas, but you also, but let them like try to come up with some ideas and then give one. So give them some ideas, but also ask them if they can come up with ideas so that they can grow that muscle of coming up with their own solutions over time. Right. Are there any other skills that we can build through our daily interactions with kids? Um, I'm thinking about something that you said before. Oh, we were talking about, let's say a child is afraid of dogs Mm -hmm. and you're walking down the street and you come across a dog and they say they don't, they freeze and mm-hmm. they don't want to be there. Can you walk me through the different ways that you could help a child go from being terrified of the dog to being able to be on the same side of the street as the dog? Absolutely. Um, so I, if you're talking about in the moment, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to agree that what we're asking the child might be more than what they're ready to do, right? Okay. Because ideally as parents, we'd like them to just be able to walk past the dog without being mm-hmm. stressed. And that's not going to happen. I think mm-hmm. part of it is just <laughs> understanding the child's limitations, but also some acceptance on the parent's part, right? Like this is hard for them. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, so I think we want to start one with figuring out what are they capable of, right? Like, maybe again, not in that moment, can they walk past the dog that day, but maybe, you know, there's a super friendly, cute dog next door that you could have over for a planned little play session, right? So it's really being thoughtful of in that moment, they may not be able to do it. So in that moment, I think you want to coach them to identify the feeling that's where you validate, you know, Mm -hmm. I see that you're feeling anxious, like it's clear you're nervous. So, you know, what can we do? And if there is a, the step seems too small for them just say, that's a great step for today. What's a step we could do tomorrow, you know, next time. So it's that idea that you're not, you know, you're not undermining what they can do, 
but you're also scaffolding what they can do so that they realize they can do more next time or that next time let's like keep working on this, you know? What I think is so helpful about what you're saying, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about this is it's very important to distinguish between being a sensitive and responsive caregiver and accommodating anxiety. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the, the way parents can feel comfortable that they are giving their child enough warmth and understanding while also not accommodating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a hard distinction. I mean, I'm a mom. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. I'm a mom. And I, I think I struggle with that distinction. And especially when it's your own behavior, it's very hard to you know, be objective, right? Yes, it's, um, it, it really is. I'm, I, I just, I think it's great that you keep saying that. And I, I think we have to just keep on saying that none of this is easy. <laughs> no, it's not. And I think in fact, you know, when you have a child who's anxious and again, typically children who are anxious have parents who are anxious, you mm-hmm. know? So you're finding that, you know, it's, it's a process that, you know, their anxiety actually you know, can really impact or exacerbate a a parent's anxiety. Yeah. But I think that is a great question that I think we're still sort of in the field, we're still struggling with like, where's that line between accommodating and being a sensitive parent, right? Because Mm -hmm. accommodation maintains a child's anxiety, whereas being a sensitive parent moves the child through the anxiety. Is the distinction that maybe we, we never blow off that the feeling exists. That's a, yeah, exactly. But we don't make sure that the experience doesn't have to happen. Right. And that's a great way of phrasing it as well, because I think that the fixing, the accommodation, I think the mentality is how can we either take this experience away Mm -hmm. or take, the stressful event away, right? Like that's the focus. Right. Whereas I think with a highly sensitive parent, you're saying, we're not going to change the situation. We are going to acknowledge that it's hard and give, you know, the ability and the skills to make it better. Yeah. And that is so hard because you know that you could also just take away that anxiety. Yeah. By just not exposing a kid. Yes. And I think that's where the challenge comes in because these are traps that parents typically fall in in the early years and most of the problems are solvable, right? Mm -hmm. But it's when you get to the teen and the young adults that, uh, you know, how do you solve, you know, that your child is not going to class at college? You can't, you can't fix it. So I'm glad you said something about that because so we've seen a massive increase in anxiety specifically in the last five years. Is it really for ages three to through adulthood? I think, no, it's a great question. I think we, you know, if we look at the research and we look at what are we seeing, I mean, the National Survey of uh, Children's Health found a 20% increase in anxiety diagnoses in a five-year period. So from 2007 to 2012, we see 20% more cases of anxiety. And that is, yeah, it's a number, but that 
also means that is an incredibly like, you know, steep increase. If you look at the same time period for depression, right? Mm -hmm. So 2007, 2012, you see only a 0.2% increase. Wow. That really puts it in perspective, right? Um, And why? I think, you know, I think the obvious is we're better at identifying it. I mean, I think, you know, schools are now more aware. Pediatricians are more aware. So kids that would have, you know, sort of flown under the radar Mm -hmm. actually getting identified. Um, I think it's also an increase in the expectations of both childhood and adolescence. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about what builds anxiety, it's that the expectations are high and either ability or your belief in your ability is not, you know, is low. And so, so yeah, it's heartbreaking. I mean, but think about it, right? Like you have at school age, there's more to do at an earlier age, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have sports teams that are no longer like, oh, go and hit around. It's okay. At age five, you have a game on Saturday, you have practice during the week, you know, and then it's, um, and you know, you're introducing an element of competition already, you know? So then you take, uh, the college process Mm -hmm. you're having, you know, kids who are just entering high school, having dialogues about where do they want to go to college? What's the best class to take for college? What's, you know, what GPA do I need to go here? And, and how do I get my SAT prep started in sophomore year? Mm. I mean, it's just a lot of things that are big stressors are happening earlier and are more intense, Mm -hmm. you know? You probably see that in droves because you're at the epicenter in Manhattan. Manhattan, right? Absolutely. So um, what is the antidote to that? I think that's where I struggle. I think it's, I think as we as a society struggle, right? Because how do you change expectations and reduce expectations when they're maintained by the systems? Right. No, it is. It's a big question. And it's, it's really overwhelming because it's yeah. true. You could say to hell with all of it. Absolutely. But you will end up in a position where you have to question if the choice that you're making for your child is what's best for their future. And then you can get into you know that whole thing. So it's hard to say to hell with it all, but it also seems like it is hurting our children. Right. And when you say hell with it all, it could have a consequence, right? You know, meaning you could say to hell with the college process, but the consequence could be that, you know, your child could end up at a school that isn't the right fit for them because Mm -hmm. of, you know, what the the system has sort of put in place is that rigorous college process, you know? So it's hard. (sighs) And I think that's when you get sort of the responses from parents, you know, you you, you know, you can even within a family system, you can start to like talk about decreasing expectations, but they kind of look at you like, yeah, we could do that, but there's no way the school's doing that. There's no way the college is doing that. There's no way the, you know, our community is doing that. Right. Yeah. Even the sports, the, the thing you mentioned about sports, it is very noticeable that there's no, there's no real extracurricular activity, it feels like they're training. It's intense training for whatever activity you choose. 
right. to sort of specialize and be amazing and also do really well in school and also be amazing as a person and also exactly. volunteer on the weekends and right. also exactly and um, it, you know and it doesn't help that around you when other people are sort of maintaining those standards or maintaining the perception that those standards are being met yeah it's hard and it, it feels like we won't come to an answer no but it is something to be aware of because it is taking a toll on kids Absolutely. so there's there's our parenting responses to their distress that right that we sort of walked through that can help kids regulate a little bit until they can get to the point where they can self-regulate. There's also our general environment that we're living in and society and culture and high expectations that may not be developmentally appropriate that are taking a toll on kids. And then there's a third thing that I, I thought we should talk about, which is our anxiety about how awful anxiety is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I notice that, and I do this too, so I'm certainly not pointing any fingers, but the, the worry of, is my child one of these statistics and is anxiety all bad? Right. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the good parts of anxiety. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this is where we look at the literature, right? We talk about sort of how does anxiety map onto performance, right? Mm-hmm. We see that, you know, we have, when we have low levels of anxiety, we have actually lower performance. And when we have high levels of anxiety, we have lower performance. And then when we have medium levels of anxiety, we have maximum performance, meaning that's sort of the sweet spot for being able to perform in a way that's consistent with ability and, you know, training, all of that, right? Um, so really the key to the type of treatments I do and I, and overall what we really hope to do with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is help maintain anxiety in a manageable range. We're never going to get rid of anxiety. And in fact, we shouldn't because it's not helpful to performance. Um, but, but once we allow it to kick into those higher ranges, it's not helpful either. Mm. So what we see is that like a medium level of anxiety is healthy. You know, it's it gives us the opportunity to kind of push ourselves. It's a signal that maybe, you know, if I don't do this, you know, it won't turn out like, you know, the things won't go as planned. It helps us stay sort of goal oriented. And really that it's, uh, it's not as bad as everyone wants it to be. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's those high levels of anxiety that are the most uncomfortable. So how can a parent spot if their kid is getting that just right anxiety before a test, for example, versus too much or too little? Well, I think this is where you kind of you know, I know we're sort of straying from comparisons, but we do want to think about what's developmentally typical, right? Um, and this is where we sort of rely on people that have expertise on child development, which is the teachers, the, you know, any professionals in the community, like a pediatrician or, and I think what you start to to do is get more of a sense of, is my child's reaction sort of consistent with how other kids are reacting, right? And and I mean, even intuitively. So let's take a math test. 
um, the next day, the night before, what would be pretty typical response would be, you know, studying and maybe staying up a little later to study, maybe, you know, expressing like, Ooh, I'm really nervous. I don't know if I'm going to like do okay. Um, you know, also maybe a little bit of like avoidance where they like, you know, call a friend or talk to a friend. And then we have more the reaction that we would be concerned about or sort of outside of the range, which is not being able to sleep all night, right? <laughs> or getting so anxious that you have a stomach ache. What are the what are the themes that you see most often? Yeah. Well, I, I think this is where parents can also help their kids by recognizing what is the theme of anxiety. Like okay. you know, it makes a much more solvable problem, right? If you're talking about the theme versus, oh my gosh, like anxiety is the issue. But um, I find there's four themes. And again, some of them, you know, with some kids you find there's two or three themes, One, some it's one, but I would start with, uh, we talk about separation, particularly from the caregiver. That's one theme. The second theme is um, harm. So worries about safety or illness right? That's, that's definitely one that could be very, very like difficult as a parent to see. And then future or uncertainty is a third theme is like kind of not knowing what's going to happen, right? That, that kid that's like, well, what if this, what if that, what, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth is performance. I mean, it's meeting expectations, perfectionism, like, you know, worries about being rejected or not good enough with their performance. Right. So I would love to jump on perfectionism because a lot of families see perfectionism happening all the time. A lot of adults, particularly women Mm -hmm. who are having children, (laughs) have perhaps had some perfectionistic qualities or traits or whatever. Yes, exactly. Um, So if you have high achieving parents, having high achieving kids, there's a there's going to be a a good chance that that perfectionism is a theme. I would love to talk about not only about perfectionism and what you're seeing, but also some of the ways that we inadvertently uh, promote or have opportunities to either promote or prohibit perfectionistic tendencies. Right. Um, Because it seems like such a big thing. And there are maybe some little things that we can do to sprinkle in um, some support for having a little bit less perfectionism. The wild thing is, and I've had, I've heard this a lot. Of course. Yeah. You know, a lot of us thrived because of our perfectionism. Absolutely. It was very, it worked for us. It worked for us. And so it's like, on the one hand, you don't want to watch your child struggle with perfectionism because they might miss out on Mm so many opportunities to be who they're capable of being and who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the thing about perfectionism, high achieving parents, high achieving kids is you've, you've described essentially my entire practice, you know, (laughs) I mean, really, right. I mean, if I'm going to be in Manhattan practicing, that's really like what you're talking about. They're going to get the best psychologist to treat their kids. So the oh, whole thing I appreciate is it, Elisa. That's no. <laughs> so that's, that's a it's a cycle though. And and then, you know, and we want to break that cycle while also the deep dark secret of like, uh oh, 
kind of worked for me. How will my child do without that? I think that's a, I, and I think that's what a lot of parents struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. Especially because, you know, you're thinking about a sort of a framework of a, a thought process and a framework that has worked. So right. it's not, and this is where we talk about kind of how do we treat it, right? And when I have the high achieving kids of, from high achieving families, we do a lot of conversation about managing expectations, mm. um, right? Because we talk about how, you know, where you are right now, let's think of what are sort of the realistic realistic expectations at this point in time, because a lot of kids will say, well, my dad, you know, went to such and such school and he had such and such job. And I'm like, yeah, but he's lived 40 more years than you, you know? So what are the expectations related to here and now? So we do a lot of, you know, managing expectations. Um, And I think it's really important for kids to think about, you know, again, the process rather than the outcome right? So Mm -hmm. that's one. The second I do a lot with is being okay with mistakes, right? And because, and we call them mistakes, but it's really that concept of being okay with things not being exactly the way you want them to be, right? So it's kind of, it's uh, mistakes, but it's also, you know, kind of accepting when things don't perfectly fit into a um, expectation that you have. And we do a lot with, you know, practicing either making mistakes or tolerating when things aren't exactly the way you want. I do a lot of tasks with, you know, you will laugh at me at the number of times I've done like a, like a silly coloring sheet and asked kids to color outside of the lines with a color theme that doesn't go with anything, right? And is it a struggle? Oh, it's a struggle. And I put it up on my office wall after they color it and I have a conversation with them. Let's just sit with that feeling that this drawing is not the way you would want it. It's outside, the coloring is outside the lines, you know? Um, And literally I've had sessions where the kids are looking at me like, I, I can't even focus on what you're saying. Cause I keep looking I at that drawing. That. Yeah. I just want to fix it. I just want to fix it. And I said, we can't fix it right now. You know, let's just mm-hmm. sit with that feeling. Um, but you know, that's a small version of what we get to ultimately, you know, my, um, daughter, I think my second daughter's first grade teacher wouldn't allow erasers in the classroom. Oh, that's I, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I thought it was such a beautiful, small way, just like you were talking about, to help the kids just get used to the mm-hmm. feeling of being, you know, not being able to erase something. And what he said was, I want to see that mistake with a big X, like a proud X right. across it, and you can redo it. I just don't want you to erase it because it was such an important part of your process. And I love that process. I just loved that. I love it. And I also think that's the words we sort of need to be using as process, not outcome, right? Mm. It's process. I mean, a lot of the times I talk with families about, it's not about the grade that the child gets. It's about the process of getting to that grade, you know? So hard work, determination, all of those things. Like I, I think, you know, we as a society are placing more value on the outcome, but, you know, realistically, what gets kids to the end goal process, right? Right, right. Um, No, and I also, um, 
a lot of these tasks that I do with kids, we have these kind of conversations. You know, it's not just coloring outside the lines because that'd be silly. Like, you know, I shouldn't get paid to do that, but you know, um, (laughs) but it's that idea of changing their thinking as part of those tasks. And it's, you know, what does it mean that it's not exactly the way you would want, you know, is that okay? Is there, you know, what's the consequence? Um, because that's the way we want them to think, right? Because those questions to ask absolutely or I I do it live with them we have a lot of that discussion which is again creating this ability to think more flexibly right and how do you shift language that's very I don't know if global is the right word but let's say you're you don't like how something looks or you don't like the work that you did so you say I always get this wrong right yeah What's a, what's a good way to help a child shift the strength? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think that that's where, you know, part of the, what the C in CBT is cognitive, is really shifting the thought process. Um, and one of the things I do, and I've done this with kids, is we, um, we talk about all or nothing thinking or mm-hmm. black and white thinking, right? It's either perfect or it's terrible. It's, yeah. you know, right or wrong. And we talk about, there's a lot of labels in between those two. And I, I've taken, I take a piece of paper and I write on one end, I write, you know, like right and one end I write wrong and or perfect or terrible. And I say, let's literally list all the words that come in between. And it's really funny. At first they're just looking at me like, what, you know, uh, not good. Like, I mean, they're just like, guessing, you know, and then I'll just say, what about average? What about meets expectations? Mm -hmm. What about, you know, good enough, you know, and then they start to think about, you know, oh, okay. Okay. I see where you're going with this, you know? And so it's really important for kids to be able to say like, I made a mistake that I've made before. And sometimes I might, you know, sometimes I make it and sometimes I don't. Um, actually, let me rephrase that. So instead of always using a word like sometimes or using a word like on average or once in a while. Right? So those are words that we can also notice in our own language right. when we're in our family, in our day-to-day life in front of our kids. And if we see them using those words like always or never, kind of giving them a moment to rethink another way of saying it so that they can get out of that habit of that black and white thinking. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's great when parents can provide really like live coaching on these kind of things, right? Like, does this always happen? Like, really? You know? Uh Um, And even using humor works really well on that too. Like, oh, always? Like you Uh always like, you know, make a mistake on your math homework. Uh Um, And, you know, I think that that's a great way to start to get kids to shift their thinking. Well, I think the idea is, you know, these terms feel like a lot of times kids will will say to me like, but I don't want to meet expectations. And I said, no, you don't have to meet expectations. We're just learning alternative labels, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so I think what we often get confused is, you know, just because we're changing our thinking doesn't mean we have to change our behavior to match that new situation, right? So, you know what? That is so great because I think that it's confusing to say that there's this range is not the same thing as saying 
you should stop aspiring yes. to do to for the process of doing you know having excellent work. Exactly. It's just about understanding that there's this range so that you don't get right. paralyzed by anything less than perfect. Exactly, because not being perfect doesn't equal failure. Right. right, and if it does, you get you can get into a place where you'd rather just sit in failure. Absolutely. You weren't perfect. So you may as well not look like you were mediocre. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I think a lot of the labels I throw in there is exceeds expectations and, you know, excellent and, you know, above, you know, above average. I mean, we throw those words in there. I think it's that, you know, again, it's creating that idea that there is a range. And, um, and going back to your point, I think also that it's really important. I mean, some of the homework assignments that I've given families is tell kids about some of your past setbacks. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't call them failures because we, we're not, we don't want to fall into that trap of like, you know, right. Or like black and white thinking, but we want to talk about setbacks, you know, talk to your child about like a setback you had. I mean, you know, and, and every parent will think of one, you know, it's not like, it's not like they're like, Oh, I never had one. I mean, they have one, but think of one that you're, you feel like you've overcome that you can share with them, like how hard it was. And, um, and I think that's really helpful for kids to hear because they always see the final outcome, which is their parent in this, you know, high achieving, very successful position. Um, but, they had a process as well, you know, and that process included setbacks. That's great. You know, I always think you're not going to prevent, you know, no. if your, your kid came out of the womb and was going to be an anxious kid, they're going to be an anxious kid. But what can we do to diminish right. the intensity and impact of that anxiety as we, you know, in the areas that we can control? And then there are wonderful people out there like yourself who are available if it feels like, you know what, my kid needs some skills to manage who she or he or they are. And this is when you say, I I need help. Yeah. And you find somebody who is a professional and who really can help because then they can grow up and have a whole toolkit so that you don't have to write a story that that anxiety becomes something terrible. Right. No. And and that's exactly, I think that a lot of parents sometimes, you know, get stuck and they shouldn't have anxiety or feeling like they can control the anxiety, but you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a biology here and there's also, you know, nature and nurture. I mean, that's what all the research says that it's nature and nurture. right? Right. But, um, but you can't control nature and you can't control nurture really either. So I think that you can definitely do things to make the, the process smoother and prevent an outcome that's more detrimental. Are there any informational websites or places to find support if you are concerned that your child might need to seek professional help? Yeah, I think the ADAA has a great website. Um, It's just ADAA.org. They talk a lot about, you know, kind of the different types of anxiety, gets a lot of resources for parents. ABCT.org is the, it's, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies also has another website that has resources. Um, I also really like a website called Go Zen. It has some resources for kids to do oh, something. Great. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a, you know, online treatment program. 
Um, you know, and, and Don Hubner has a series of, you know, books about, you know, helping kids to their self-help workbooks and the kids can read them on their own. But the one she has is what to do when you worry too much. Oh, yes. 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 And what to do when your brain gets stuck. That's more for OCD. Um, but those what are great you, resources. What to yeah. do when you're afraid of your bed or yeah, you dread your, bre- dread when your bed, bed. Right. I like that one. Um, and uh, there's another one that's what to do when mistakes make you quake. Yes. No. And that's that's an offshoot. It's not the same author as Don Hubner, but those are really good ones for really just getting kids to start, you know, taking, you know, kind of uh, owning the anxiety and, and doing something about it. Wonderful. I'll put all of those in the show notes and we will have to do this again because there uh-huh. are so many other, uh, I mean, you have so many great thoughts and ideas and information to give to people who have concerns. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's really important for parents to be able to really have a venue to hear about sort of those developmental challenges that are, you know, that are directly addressed by like a medical professional or, you know, schools, but, you know, they're just a little bit outside the box. And I think there's not enough resources that, that, you know, are in that gap. And now for listener Q&A. Hello, I truly enjoy listening to your podcast while commuting to work in LA. We've recently moved neighborhoods and schools mid-year. We've been moving every two years between different states and countries for the entire life of my older daughter and consider her to be very adaptable. This time, she seems to be struggling to adjust to her new circumstances. Her stress levels have never been this high, and I see a level of worry that is a little bit disproportionate to what's causing her to worry. The new school teaching seems to be contradicting the old and the feeling of being lost or unaware is making Julia feel anxious almost all of the time. Are there any tools that you can give to help her learn to cope with the stress of this new situation? Thanks in advance. Wow, that's a lot of moving. And, um, you know, sometimes it depends on your child's age. So I actually don't see here an age, but Based on your description, it sounds like you might have an emerging adolescent or adolescent. And transitions are hard for everybody, but they're harder for some kids than others. And, you know, while you would think that moving kids a lot would help them be really adaptable, for many kids, having stability helps them be more adaptable. It really is often person dependent and temperament dependent. And here's the other factor around the age of 10 and on you have an emerging adolescent and adolescent brain. And when that happens, your brain goes through a remodeling of sorts. Everything feels different. So how you adjust and adapt feels different. How you perceive stress feels different. And the way you care about things that maybe before wouldn't feel like a big deal can feel like a really big deal. This isn't something that is personality-based so much. This is just like what's happening in her brain structure. So for example, all of a sudden, 10, 11, 12, 13, you have all these new worries about what other people think and how your peers perceive you and fitting in matters so much more. It can actually disappoint a lot of parents because it feels like, oh my God, my independent free-spirited kid who was really, you know, like didn't care so much about the stresses of other people and how they think of them causes them to, you know, become a, they they just become a person who deeply, deeply is worried and concerned 
that the outside world can read her thoughts and feelings and that she might not fit in. And that can cause a tremendous amount of stress on emerging and adolescent brains. So rather than think of them as disproportionate to what's causing her to worry, I would listen to her and let her have those worries and sort of unload on you, obviously respectfully, but have a place for her to just worry without being told that they're not that big of a deal so that she can come to that on her own as she walks through it with you. You can even think of yourself as a witness instead of a judge. So you're witnessing her go through this experience and you can repeat back to her what she's told you to make sure you understand. And you might even ask her what you know, what she plans to do, or if there's something that she's looking for from you, do you want my advice? Or do you want to just tell me what's going on and vent? And be a resource for her without it turning into the central story of your family where, you know, she comes home and it's just about her anxiety. Really just give her a safe space. You can even set a time, like we're going to spend 15 minutes every day kind of walking through those anxieties. And then we're going to put them away. We'll put them to the side and we'll get back to them tomorrow. This will help her get more comfortable with the normalizing these feelings that she's having. And, um, you know, I also recommend if she loves reading, which you also mentioned, if you get her, there's a book on the teenage brain that is actually written for both parents and kids to read. And it's fascinating. So if you have a little bit of a reader or scientist on your hands, sometimes it really helps to feel more comfortable with what's going on in your life when you see that your brain's restructuring. There's like a whole thing, remodeling rather, and there's like a whole slew of things happening that make it so that your responses are different than you even recognize in yourself. And um, it also has some tools and that's Dan Siegel's book called Brainstorm. So give that a try. It's something also that can help you help her sort through some of these things and give you an understanding of what's going on so that some of her responses don't seem so um, maladaptive. And the consistency of her unconditionally loving family and certain things that make her feel more comfortable will help her adapt over time. And it may also be, as you said, that the school is just asking different things from her. And um, so you need to talk to her and listen more than anything to what those differences are and maybe help her think of ways that she can find adults who can help her navigate that in her school. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. And please keep sending your direct messages on at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. Have a great week.